This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Testimony continued today in the most notorious criminal trial in Richland County history. Dr. John Boyle is accused of killing his wife, Maureen, and burying her body in the basement of his new home in Erie, Pennsylvania. I did not kill Maureen. I never harmed her at all. The 12-year-old son of accused murderer, Mansfield Dr. John Boyle, finally took the stand. As I heard a scream, I heard a thud. It was about this loud. Did the jury in this case find the defendant guilty? I confront my incarcerated father in prison. And finally, I'm going to have that moment where I can ask this man, why, Dad? Why did you do this? Everyone knows it's premeditated. What I want to know is why. Carly, I have told you the truth. This is a psychopath. He's believing it while he's saying it. Do you think you're a sociopath? No, no, no. I'm Collier Landry, and this is Moving Past Murder. Today is January 10th. 2022 and today Robert Durst has died in custody in Stockton, California. He was beginning to serve a prison sentence for a recent uh, conviction he had in September for the Los Angeles murder of his close friend Susan Berman uh, in 2000. So Durst was in custody after being, um, I, I don't know if he was awaiting sentencing, but he was found guilty by a jury. Um, and then he got COVID two days later. <laughs> uh, not that COVID is funny, but it is kind of mm, humorous or shows that maybe God does have a sense of humor when a piece of absolute horrific garbage like Robert Durst gets it. Um, but sadly, he has passed away, and it is sad. So just to give a little background, so he he had just been convicted uh, in this trial for the murder of his friend Susan Berman. Now, it is believed that the reason or his motive for, doing, for committing the murder was that um, Susan Berman had knowledge of and possibly even helped cover up the murder of Durst's wife, who went missing, her name is uh, Kathleen McCormick, and she disappeared in 1982. And no one, you know, everyone suspected him. Now, let me back up a little bit. So Durst is, comes from a very wealthy New York real estate family. And like all wealthy people that have a lot of time on their hands. And uh, as they say, idle hands are the devil's workshop. Durst uh, seemed to dabble in sociopathy and psychopathy. So he was tried. I don't know if it was in the 2000s, but he was tried for the murder and dismemberment of his friend in Galveston, Texas. Um, <laughs> now on the witness stand during this particular trial, Durst admits to dismembering 
the body of his friend, but not killing him. Staggeringly, astonishingly, <laughs> in what can only be described as a um, <laughs> miscarriage of justice, uh, he is acquitted <laughs> for that murder of this gentleman in Galveston, Texas. Um, and he, Durst had caught the attention of a filmmaker named Andrew Jarecki. Now, Andrew Jarecki is well-known for directing a, another true crime documentary and a very sad uh, in nature, but it's called Capturing the Freedmans. And Jarecki was doing a, became aware of Durst, and Durst was this kind of, he was a very sort of a larger-than-life character as far as he was very, you know, outgoing and very personable and charming. And I have to say that from my personal experience, being that my father is a sociopath, um, obviously, if you're listening to this podcast, you know that uh, I am Collier Landry. I am the subject of Investigation Discovery's documentary, A Murder in Mansfield, which is about the murder of my mother by my father, which I witnessed as the sole witness and testified against my father when I was 12 years old, uh, putting my father in prison. Um, my father put himself in prison, but I made sure he went there and he is still incarcerated to this day. Um, so I know a thing or two about sociopaths and being around them and psychopathy. And they tend to be very charming and very uh, gregarious and um, personable people, almost to the point that you don't believe that they could do such a thing. Now, that was was certainly the case with my father's trial. I mean, my father murdered my mother, suffocated her, wrapped a plastic bag around her head and buried her underneath a house in a neighboring state that he had purchased for his girlfriend who was pregnant with his uh, child and buried her underneath the basement floor. And police ended up, because of my persistence as a young man and persistence of my mother's friends, they found the the body. Um, And my father was subsequently arrested. Uh, but there were many people in my small town of Mansfield, Ohio, that did not believe that my father could do such a thing. So I would say one of the, the main characteristics of being a sociopath is being able to uh, charm people <laughs> and convince them that you are just not that person. So back to Jarecki. So Jarecki became fascinated with this case and... Uh, was directing a or directed a film that he wrote that was a uh, not a documentary that was a scripted narrative film about Durst where I believe maybe Ryan Gosling played him <laughs> I guess if you're going to choose a charming actor to play a charming sociopath psychopath Ryan Gosling's your man uh, I've never seen the film I don't even know what it's called but Essentially, Jarecki became interested in this and and Durst became interested in this film. And Durst actually reached out to Jarecki and his writing partner and said, I want to tell, I want to tell my story. Um, And you can ask me anything you want and I'll tell you the truth. Hands off. So as a filmmaker... Um, which I am, uh, having unfettered access to someone, especially someone who is wealthy, well-known, and also suspected of 
multiple murders <laughs> and is blatantly out in the public denying them and almost I feel during the course of his stint as a free man flaunted that in the face of law enforcement not to mention the victims and the victims' families that had to deal with this piece of garbage walking the earth um, as a free man. So uh, Jarecki jumped at the opportunity and the result of that was an HBO documentary called The Jinx. Now, in The Jinx, like they have this unfettered access to this guy and it reminds me a lot of my film of Murder in Mansfield because in a Murder in Mansfield <laughs> it would it would normally be very difficult to get someone like my father who still probably to this day denies that he murdered my mother or doesn't think he murdered my mother you just have to watch the film and you'll see the whole the whole sort of ending segment of the film which is me confronting him in prison <laughs> and asking him very difficult questions. But uh, he was under the impression that I was making a documentary for myself and my director, Barbara Koppel, producer John Morrissey, David Cassidy, um, that we were making a film to help him get out of prison. <laughs> um, yes, the hubris and the narcissism in the mind of a sociopath and psychopath is unparalleled <laughs> to say the least. But he, he was a very willing participant because I feel that he felt that he was going to be able to tell his side of the story and people would believe him and that this would help him get out of prison. He was denied parole again in 2020, but we won't get into that. Um, <laughs> So back to Robert Durst and the Jinx. So um, Drecky makes this movie with just this absolutely unfettered access to this character, Robert Durst. And um, he catches him in a few <laughs> really like, you know, gotcha moments. Now, the big scene, and I believe it's, they, they, they laid out this documentary in like seven parts, I think, or episodes. But the big thing was, it was a hot mic situation. And he goes to use the restroom and the sound guy doesn't stop rolling the sound. Probably because they knew, <laughs> they knew he was going to say something and he literally mutters in the bathroom to himself. Uh, you know, you've you've gone and got yourself caught. Uh, of course, I did it. I killed them all. Killed them all. Of course. Prosecutors used Durst's own words from the documentary as evidence that he confessed to the murders. Nobody tells the whole truth. He basically has this <laughs> this urinal confession, if you will, and uh, that's that's the big the big moment in the film. But there's another really key moment. And this just sort of speaks to the absolute, the absolute just depth of the of the sociopathy and psychopathy. And look, I'm not a psychologist or psychiatrist, but my father is a sociopath, and 
uh, and I, I lived this my entire life and dealing with him and, and on this podcast, obviously I read letters and things of that nature to kind of give the audience a look inside the, the mind and, and the deception and manipulation and things like that. So uh, one of the things I found fascinating, but just so actually chillingly familiar to me because I've just been, I mean, it's it just, it rang, it, it just hit home immediately is when I watched this documentary and there's a moment where there is a, <laughs> a letter that is found with the body of Susan Berman. I believe it's Susan Berman. Um, and they ask, they, they have another letter <laughs> that Durst wrote to Susan Berman. And they're showing the address on the envelopes of both letters. And, and they said, you know, because he says, oh, there was a letter that was written that was by the killer. <laughs> and he, uh, you know, is explaining this. And they take the letters and they have the letter and the addressed envelope to Susan Berman from him as a friendly note or whatever he was sending her Christmas card, who knows. Um, and then the other letter with the same address <laughs> that was on the body that the killer, using air quotes for those of you that can't watch the video portion of this, uh, that the killer left with the body. Um, and the handwriting is spot on. It's identical. There's no, <laughs> there's no way that any rational person on the planet Earth could ever look at this and go, Oh, no, that's not him. It's him. And he is just... He's like, well, yeah. <laughs> and they end up playing this, obviously, this <laughs> this footage in the trial. And again, he doesn't... I mean, I, I might have to check my facts on this, but I don't believe he denies it, but he does... You know, he basically just says, oh, yeah, that's the same handwriting. That, yeah, the, the killer wrote that note or something. I mean, it's just so, it's so staggering, the amount of, I don't know if you call it hubris, chutzpah, or just plain just crazy. But this guy, you know, he doesn't know he's caught, or he does know he's caught, but he's just trying to play it off. It's sort of like, what is it, the fake until you make it type thing? I, I, I don't know. Um, this must be the true crime version of that. Who, who knows? Um but it's just, it's staggering because in the scene, in the murder of Mansfield, when I'm confronting my father, my father is saying, you know, uh, I'm asking him, you know, he claims that he pushed my mother. She hit her head. He comes back in the room. She's, she's dead. He tries to do CPR. He couldn't do this, but then she was coming at him with a knife. I mean, it's just. It's very difficult and it's very surreal to always talk to to talk about this, but I'm hoping that, you know, I, th I feel like the listeners and I feel like you guys uh, glean some benefits of this. So, uh, you know, he's in this, you know, fantasy world. <laughs> There's no other way to put it. Um, and he's in this uh, situation where he is just... Um, he, he he's trying to justify and he knows that he, he knows he murdered my mother. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty obvious. 
is a premeditated murder. It was, um, uh, you know, it wasn't a crime of passion. Uh, a lot of people mistake it for that. It was not. He. It was a premeditated murder. You know, he had been planning for a while to kill her. Asked about lowering the concrete, lowering the basement floor, and what the, what the concrete was made up of, um, and rented a jackhammer and all these things long before the murder. Um, but uh, I, I say to my father in the film, "How did you get the plastic bag? How did she get a plastic bag over his head?" Because my mother was suffocated. Uh, the, the first cause of death was was suffocation. Um, and then the second was suffocation by strangulation and uh, then blunt force trauma to the head. Um, so I asked him, I said, what, you know, who, who put the bag? How did she get a bag? I actually say verbatim, how did she get a bag over her head then? And he said, I put the bag there. Um, and then he sort of stammers a little bit and says uh, something to the effect of he didn't want to look at her face or something like that. <clears throat> Anyways. Um, so it is... So when I, when I see that, <laughs> when I see that scene and, and him and the, the note uh, or the letter and the handwriting, it, uh, man, it rings true. And... You know, I wanted to do a little little blurb of an episode on this and just talk about it because I, you know, it's um, it's really a tough pill to swallow, and I'll and for a couple reasons, and you know, and and today's you know his passing today, his death today is a hard pill to swallow for many because he was just convicted of this murder of Susan Berman, but he was awaiting trial in New York City for the murder of his wife, Kathleen McCormick, who disappeared, like I said, in 1982. So it is 2022 now. We are 10 days, almost 11 days in. And this woman was missing for 40 years. Now, I think that they, you know, there was much speculation over the years that he did it. But to the victims, not only Kathleen McCormick, but to her family, because they are victims too, and and they're the surviving victims. They're the ones left to pick up the aftermath of these types of things. This, the title of a murder in Mansfield was originally going to be aftermath about the consequences of violence. It was something I was very passionate about talking about because I, as a victim, um, even though I don't look at myself that way, but I technically am a victim. Uh, I am the surviving victim of the murder. Uh, that my and my uh, adopted sister, but um, I was, you know, the one who witnessed the murder and testified. Um, but um, there's <laughs> there's a lot of unanswered questions you have, and I feel like that I really know what these people are going through. I know that they, look, nothing that Robert Durst was going to say was going to bring back Kathleen, right? But it might have given them just a little bit of closure. And that's a tough pill to swallow. And I can, you know, speak with absolute certainty (laughs) 
That is one of the unique things about this podcast is you are getting a perspective on true crime from someone who has lived this. And the murder of my mother by my father was one of the largest cases in Ohio history. Um, it was one of the most horrific crimes I think anyone's ever, ever heard. And um, yeah, so I'm here to sort of give that perspective and, and I doubt they are listening, but if they are, you know, to the families and to the friends and to the people that we're hoping to get, because I think the general consensus was, is that like Durst is, you know, okay, now you're in jail, buddy. Like you're in prison. <laughs> you're not going anywhere. He was 78. So he, he, ain't, he ain't getting out. It's like when they gave Bernie Madoff, what, 162 years, like he was never going to see them. It was what, 70 when they arrested him. Yeah, he's never going to see the light of day again. Um, but I think that they had had these hopes because this guy was known for just kind of going off the cuff and riffing, <laughs> especially during this trial uh, with Susan Berman. He had all these kind of moments where people were like, what? You know, he was very, I mean, even in the trial that he was acquitted from when he's talking about, you know, he literally says in court, I did not kill him, but I did dismember him. I dismembered his body, but I did not kill him. I mean, what, uh, what in the literal fuck? What, like, and how, how he doesn't, go to prison is a travesty but whatever but i think that that these people really like we're really looking forward to like getting that just that really small piece of closure whatever that looks like right whatever that is um whether it be new evidence or how he did it or what what was going through his head i mean i don't even know what you could say i mean there's nothing my father could ever say to me that would justify it. But I had to find out that out the hard way. I mean, I'm sitting across the table from my father in the prison and I'm asking him to literally come clean and admit to murdering my mother. And he keeps, you know, denying it. And, you know, and then he, then he comes up with the story about the knife and then, Oh, then she hit her head on this. And, and, and I said, you know, I said, everyone knows it's premeditated. <laughs> what I want to know is why. And he just can't give it to me. And I think I personally, and I did a TED talk about this. You can watch it on the TED website. It's called, what if the answer you seek is not the answer you find? That was not the real title, but that's the title that it got, <laughs> got given. Um, but basically it's, it's, it's about my personal quest uh, to move out of a small town, come to Hollywood, get my story out there, get my mother's story out there, honor my mother and try to find a little bit of peace and solace within myself and find out like really like what is the, why did my father do this i don't understand and that was one of the things i had to really as a young man coming into you know my 20s and 30s um i really struggle with because you know you you engage in not only relationships with people or, you know, whether that's a, a romantic relationship, a personal friendship, whatever that is, right? But you also, you begin to sort of question like, hey, does the apple really fall far from the tree? And you, you sort of begin to kind of, you know, question yourself a lot. So for me, I wanted that closure. I wanted to, uh, I thought that what I needed at that time was to have my father 
say, you know what, look, I did it. I killed her. It was, uh, it was a horrible thing. I, she was spending too much money or I didn't like that she did this or she wouldn't let me have my cake and eat it too with my girlfriend and her, whatever justification this man had. And I thought, okay, I'll get those answers <laughs> and then I will be able to move on with my life. Not that I hadn't already, but I would have this sort of renewed sense of, hey, I'm uh, I'm not like him. I don't... Ha- this is why this happened. This makes sense because, and as I say in the talk, we as human beings are natural empaths, right? So we are always looking for a way to justify in our minds traumatic or tragic or just horrific circumstances because it's the only way that we can as a coping mechanism really understand is sort of get inside and go okay what why did this person do it and and often the question and i can speak from 100 percent experience the question of why is what will make you crazy Why did they, why did this person do this? Why did they do this to me? Why did they do this to my mother? Why did this, why did my father, why did my father, what? And to these victims that aren't going to get their answers to that question. And as, as the title of this podcast is moving past murder is you don't always get the answer that you seek, but you always get the answer you need. And for me, when I look back at it, and this is my, again, my experience is unique to me. I'm not saying that, you know, the wife of, Ka- the, the, sorry, the family of Kathleen McCormick doesn't have a, doesn't have a right or, or, or shouldn't feel that they want to have these questions answered by all means. Absolutely. 100%. It is just human nature and it is part of the coping mechanism of the trauma I personally feel that if my father had come to me and and I, I discussed this with the with the psychologist that's in the film, Dr. Dennis Marikis, um, who we're going to have on this program, by the way. Uh, I, we engaged in a conversation and I can't remember actually if this made it in the film or not, but I was saying to him, you know, he, he was... You know, I explained what happened with my father, what my father said, and and he said, "Well, you know, how does that make you feel?" And you, you know, do you do you feel fulfilled? Do you feel like you got your answer? And, and I guess I, I, although I felt like I didn't get my answer, I did get my answer because I say to my father before I walk out of the room, or before we get up and he walks out of the room, I should say. Um, is, you know, I believe you believe that. And that's my answer. Because he's just so wrapped up into his own sociopathy and narcissism. And you know, so narcissism is a very big trait of sociopathy. Now, somebody can be narcissistic and not a sociopath, but most often, if they are a sociopath, they are definitely narcissistic. But it doesn't work both ways, if that makes sense. So somebody could be a narcissist and not be a sociopath. So if you are around a narcissist, I'm, I'm sorry, but, um, 
don't don't fear for your life just yet. Um, but you know, I I say to him, you know, I believe you believe that, right? And and so Dr. Marcus says to me, you know, he goes, well, you know, let me propose this to you. <laughs> I think. And, and and this might not even have been in the film. This might have actually been in a private conversation. And when I when I have him on the podcast, I'll talk to him about this. But he may have said it to me at a later date. Is what I'm getting at. But the thing is, is that he posed a really inter- interesting question to me. And that question was: If your father <laughs> completely confessed to doing everything and said, you know what? Hey, I did it. Papa. This is why I did it. This was my reasoning. This is my justification. I thought I could get away with it. Whatever. If he fully admitted, would that have been enough? And he challenged me to think about it this way. He said, on top of that, he, so he said, I, you know, and me being Collier would have even more questions. So, you know, by my father not saying anything, he, he tells me everything, right? And that's sort of the, the solace that I found in that particular conversation and then to move on with my life, right? So I guess my appeal is to the family, the victims, um, and those that were really hoping to to get some sort of closure in the death of Kathleen McCormick. Um, I'm sorry, but you know, you've the answer you have is going to have to be enough, and is really what you need because it's all just going to lead to more questions. Now. Maybe they can't pull an answer from it. And maybe they will be haunted with these questions because maybe they want to know their why. And they just want to understand, like, why did you do this, Robert? Why did you murder my mother, my sister, my best friend, my grandmother? And they'll never get it. And that's tragic, but there is a way through. I mean, I'm living proof of it. There is a way through. And you'll get there but it's not easy (laughs) it is not not easy I have a tattoo on my arm from a David Foster Wallace novel called Infinite Jest and in it you guys are having a conversation and this is uh, they're talking about truth and you know the, the quote says you know the truth will set you free but not until it is finished with you which you know I had said essentially to my father like you know this is your opportunity to tell the truth and set yourself free. Not literally like walk out of jail, but free your soul. Um, and he was incapable of doing that. Um, but these are all interesting questions. And I, and I, and this, you know, this case popped up, I saw it today and I thought, you know, and he's actually the same age as my father. Uh, yeah, it just is, um, I'm really hoping that the victims can can find a way to move through all this and move move past this murder because it's um 
it's not easy by any stretch of the imagination it's not easy but it's it's worth it if you can get there that's my two cents on that so uh yes robert durst the real estate heir turned dismemberer murderer um convicted murderer and probably would have been convicted in kathleen mccormick's murder i'm sure uh is dead today at the age of 78 he died in a prison facility prison hospital in stockton california if you've never been to stockton california it's not a very nice place there's a lot of prisons it's central california there's a lot of prisons in california for those of you that don't listen to it and sorry to anyone who i may have offended um in the central california area but it's you know it's not a nice place let's, let's not mince words but yeah and one of the the interesting things that that I was listening to this interview earlier with Andrew Jarek. He was being interviewed by George Stephanopoulos on ABC. And this was actually only a couple of months ago because Durst was convicted of this murder of Susan Berman in, I believe, September. So, what, four or five months ago? George Stephanopoulos asked the director, Andrew Jarek, you know, were you afraid that if he got acquitted, he might come after you? Because, again, a lot of the evidence they used in this trial, they got from that documentary. That hurt that that Durst willingly, <laughs> willingly participated and wanted to to participate in. Um, so nobody forced his hand, that's for sure. But again, you're dealing with someone who's a narcissist and a sociopath, and they think the world of themselves, and they think everyone else should too. Really, at the end of the day, they're just they're so enamored by their own bullshit that they just um, they, they don't even stop to think what anybody else's feelings or, or take on the subject is. I mean, that's the very element of sociopathy. There is no empathy factor. So it's very much like there's nothing there. Um, and you can see it in his eyes. I mean, they're dead eyes. They're just very, just black and just soulless. It's scary. It's like when I looked at my father in prison, same thing. Just very, just, it's like nothing. There's like nothing behind it. It's, it's very difficult to describe to someone who hasn't seen it or been in those situations and by the way thank god you haven't like if you have not you're not you you don't want to be but to actually stare back at another human being and and go there's you have no soul man like there's there's nothing there it's um it's it's very scary it's a very scary scary thing I definitely had a new take on my sort of thoughts um, about horrible people throughout history and the 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 measures that with the which they go to to commit very heinous acts towards their fellow man but uh, I guarantee you have to be like that. You have to have no soul. But these, you know, this guy, Robert Durst, you can look at it. So anyways, back to what I was saying about Jarecki. They said, did you fear for your life? Because they used all this footage. And he said, well, it's like not really a reason why George Stephanopoulos asked him this is because Durst had killed somebody who was a witness. 
Susan Berman, who who knew about the murder of Kathleen McCormick. So he's known for killing people that know too much, right? So, and, and this was always a this was always a thing that um, people uh, asked me about my father: is did I um, was I afraid of him uh, retaliating against me? And how that affects his parole and this, that, and the other. And like, if he had gotten out, what I was, was I scared? And I was like, well, no. First of all, I'm not going to live my life in fear. I was already afraid of that man when I was a kid. I'm not going to revisit that again. Uh, but he, you know, it, it was interesting. Jarecki and, and, you know, he had that moment when he was like, but, you know, what? what <laughs> no, I'm not afraid of this guy. And said, good on him. Yeah. Robert Durst passed away at 78. He also had COVID. He got COVID two days after he got sentenced for uh, for the murder of Susan Berman, which I think was really interesting. Um, that's not what he died of, of course. He, I, I believe he had cancer and he had all kinds of stuff. I mean, of course he had cancer. He's been living with this horrible, these horrible acts that he's committed. And they've just been festering inside of him for decades. So, yeah, of course... Um, surprised he made it this long, actually. And what a just a waste, you know, something that my my grandmother, my father's mother, who, you know, put my father put her house up for my father's, you know, attorney fees and all these things. Um, one of the last things she ever said to me it was, I believe, in 1998. Yeah, 1998. Is she, we were in the kitchen making pizzelles and my grandmother was Italian. So a little old Italian lady <laughs> with her grandson. And of course you're making pizzelles, right? With honest seed and, you know, uh, using the pizzelle iron and, you know, anyways, for, for those of you who don't know, pizzelle is a very thin Italian cookie, usually with anise or anise as some people pronounce it, um, or, uh, like an almond flavor or, uh, or amaretto and then, um, or lemon flavor. It's kind of the, the variety you get, right? I think they even have chocolate pizzelles, but you know what? If you know better than I do, you can put it in the comments below. Um, but, uh, you know, she said to me, she just was kind of like in her own world, just kind of staring off. And she just had this moment and she looked at me and she, uh, or she was staring off into space, actually, I should say. And she said, my Jackie, what a waste of talent. Yeah, what a waste of talent indeed. And uh, Robert Durst, man, the the world was your oyster. <laughs> you came from a very wealthy family, prominent family in New York. Could have had any opportunity you wanted. And you chose this as your legacy. And on that note, I'm Collier Landry. This is Moving Past Murder. Thanks, y'all. This podcast is made possible by support from listeners just like you. Please subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible. Find us on YouTube, youtube.com forward slash Collier Landry. The film A Murder in Mansfield is available on Investigation Discovery, Discovery Plus, and Amazon Prime Video.
This podcast is a production of Don't Touch My Radio in association with RSA Entertainment. Please visit mpmpodcast.com to show your support today.